Uh, the children can go ahead and, and make their way to the side. We're going to start off each Sunday with a testimony. Um, we're starting off with men from the Vine Project, and we'll probably open that up to other people also. Uh, just want to regularly bring uh, testimonies to you about how God is changing people by His grace, uh, by His Word, through prayer, uh, through the church. Hey, Alan, can you turn down maybe the monitors a little? What's that? They're off. I just hear a lot of something. So, it's in my head. Could be in my head. Um, thanks, Chantley. Funny guy. Um, so it's, it's the first day of the new year, and have you all heard the joke, I haven't seen you since last year? <laughs> I love that joke. Like, you only get to use it once a year, but it's just so funny, and you get to overuse it with everyone. And so um, I've probably said that to each of you. If I haven't, I will probably say that to you six or seven more times. But Happy New Year. It's fun. We're gathering on the first day of the year. Isn't that fun? Like, I love that. I love that we're starting off as the church, gathering uh, to worship God, to study Him through His Word, to see baptism, to hear testimonies, to hear what God is doing. I I don't think there's a better way to start. Um, And today, our title is Living Fully Devoted to God, and and that's really my prayer. As we go through the text today, uh, my prayer is that you'd be reminded of who God is and how He has saved you through the grace of God. I pray that you'd be in awe of His love of his power, of his mercy, of his grace. I pray that as we look at who he is and how he has saved us by his grace, that you would taste his goodness and that it would be sweet. I pray that you would know that, God has, um, that the God who has saved you promises to also complete the work that he began in you. So as he saves you, he then doesn't leave you and say, well, good luck, but he says, I promise that I will complete what I have begun Now, if you're here and you have not believed in Jesus, then I pray that today, through the words, you would better understand who God is, what he has done, and that you would desire to enter into a relationship with him today. Now, we're going to be in the Old Testament today, 1 Kings chapter 18. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's a large section. So actually, we're going to read through it in sections because of that. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. What I'm going to do is pray, and then we're just going to work through these sections uh, slowly as we go through this message. Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for your word. I thank you that, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, your inerrant perfect, infallible word, that we would know you, that we would know what you have done for us, that God, we would, we would see your grace in Jesus Christ, that we'd see your beauty, that we would experience your love and your mercy and the joy that's found in you. And Father, I pray that as, as we come into your word today, that your spirit would work powerfully and that your word would not return empty, but it would produce great fruit in our lives today. Give us understanding, give us wisdom. God, I pray that you also give us conviction, draw us to repentance where we need to repent. And God, increase our love and our joy in you today. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Now normally, what we do is we stand as we read God's word, and we do that because... uh, 
Uh, We love God's Word and we believe it comes uh, with the full authority of God. However, just because we're going to be reading many sections today and and quite a bit, I'm only going to have you read or stand the first time. So we're going to stand the first time and then I won't make you stand all the other times. But it's fun to stand, so uh, make sure we get our exercise. I'll invite you to stand. We're going to start in verse 17 and we'll read through verse 20. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the peoples, or gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. You all may be seated. I'm not going to make you stand again. So as, as we dig into this, I, I want to make sure we have context here. Uh, there's a famine that's taken place for about three years now. And uh, so there has been rain that has been withheld from the land. And when you are an agricultural people who rely upon your crops, who rely upon your cattle, this is huge and detrimental if you do not have water. We come across Elijah. He is God's prophet. And, uh, and we're going to see him throughout this passage. We also have Ahab. Ahab's the one who says to him, you're the troubler of Israel. And he believes Elijah is the troubler of Israel because Elijah is the one who has called for the drought. And Ahab is the king. Now at this point, Israel is broken up into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is often characterized as Judah. And the northern kingdom is called Israel. And so Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom. Now, when you go through the book of Kings, it's kind of like reading just... um, a list of dirt bags. You get one bad king after one bad king after one bad king after one bad king. And so Omri, the, the king that was before Ahab and Ahab's father, we are told in chapter 16, or we're told prior, that he is the most wicked king that has ever been in Israel. Then we move to Ahab, his son, who will not be outdone by his father. And in chapter 16, verse 30, we read, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And in verse 33, we read, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So at this moment, we have the worst king in history. He also marries a woman named Jezebel, which that's who we come across next. She is a foreigner. She comes from the land of uh, the Sidonians. And she is the one who has reintroduced the worship of Baal to the people of God. And so, we'll talk about the worship of Baal for a moment. Um, Baal is a false prophet or a false god. He is the god of weather. He is the god of war. He's the god of agriculture. And so... um, He has been worshipped throughout the land um, of of other nations many times, and there is much history that goes with with Baal and the people of Israel. Um, So let me give four reasons 
why the worship of Baal is so popular at this time. Number one, there's the political reason. Ahab and Jezebel both worship Baal. What we see in verse 19 is that the, ver- the false prophets eat with Jezebel at her table every day. So politically, the God of Israel is Baal. Um, there's also historical reason, which I've already kind of mentioned Throughout, uh, ever since Israel came into the promised land, uh, they have faced Baal. They have other nations have worshipped Baal, and other nations have tried to introduce the worship of Baal to them. So what that means is that he's a familiar God. He's not a new God. He's not someone that just kind of comes in and catches everyone off guard. There's a history here. There's familiarity here. There's also the practical reason. He's the God of weather. Well, if you're an agricultural people, then you need a God of weather. You need someone who brings forth the rain. He's the God of fertility. He'll make sure your crops grow. He'll make sure your cattle reproduce. He makes sure your wife has a baby. And so it's very beneficial to worship a God like this. He promises you everything that you need. There's also the, sec- the sexual reason. If you're not happy with your wife or in life in general, then you can come to the temple prostitutes and they will satisfy you. So there's many reasons to worship the, the God of Baal here. And so that's how we start. That's the context that's taking place. And so I'm going to read now verses 20 through 29. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. In that noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And so here we're at the challenge that Elijah is going to present before the people of Israel. Verse 19, Elijah says, let's gather the 450 prophets of Baal, (coughs) the 400 400 prophets of the Asherah, and we'll meet up on Mount Carmel. In verse 21, we see the point. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is, then follow him. So the point is choose. Stop going back and forth. Now, have you ever gone to the grocery store? 
and before you pick your line, you're kind of standing between the lines, and you kind of, you know, you're, you're judging which one's going to move faster, and the one on your right starts to move faster, so you slowly move to the right, but then there's a problem. You know, they have to, like, price check something, so then you slowly move back, and you see this one looks like it's going a little faster, so you, you know what I'm talking about. You're kind of limping back and forth. You're going to choose the one who's going to most benefit you. You want the one that serves you. You want the one that's going to help you get through the line the fastest. This is the people of Israel. They're not committed to either one. They want the one that's going to benefit them, the one that's going to serve them, the one that's going to meet their needs. So they have their, they have their feet in both lines saying, all right, is it going to be Baal or is it going to be Yahweh? And so the point is, Elijah says, choose the God that you'll follow. Stop limping. You can't serve two gods. You're either serving one or the other, but you can't serve two. If you have two wives, you can't serve both wives equally, can you? You're either with one, and if you're with one, you're not with the other. You can't serve two gods. If you're worshiping one, you cannot simultaneously be worshiping the other god. Jesus makes this point. Matthew 6, 24. At the Sermon on the Mount, he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now we're given a picture, a little glimpse of just how torn Israel is at this moment. If you look at the end of verse 21, Elijah says, You need to choose. Stop limping. And then what does it say? And the people did not answer him a word. And what should they have done at this moment? They should have repented. You guys are going in between two gods. Do you not remember the God of Israel? The one who brought you out of, uh, out of Egypt through the Red Sea, conquered the other nations, brought down the walls of Jericho. Do you not remember this God? But rather they stand there completely hardened. They have no conviction. They don't fall down and repent. They're like lumps on a log And they're representing the spiritual condition of Israel at this moment. And this is what happens. When we try to split our worship, when we become divisive in our worship, we're actually not committed to anything. And the only effect that it has is it begins to harden our hearts. So what we see is that that Israel has forgotten God's faithfulness. They've forgotten His promises. They've forgotten how how He has saved them and how He has made them into a people. And now they're just mute, just like a false idol is mute, unable to answer. So both the prophets of Baal and Elijah are to come upon Mount Carmel, and they're to present an offering. And the God who answers with fire is going to be the true God. Now this should be easy for Baal, right? The God of weather, the one who controls rain and lightning, this is right up his alley. This is not hard. The prophets of Baal would be like, well, this is an easy challenge. The people would be like, well, this is the prophet, or this is Baal, this is what he does. Now notice that Elijah gives every advantage to Baal. He gives the location, of band, uh, location advantage. Mount Carmel is right next to Sidonia. And so it's also called the Holy Head of Baal. It's a beautiful agricultural area which represents, uh, which points to his 
uh, to the fact that he's a weather god, that he produces fertility, that he produces rain that then makes the plants and the, and the flowers grow. So it's a beautiful area that points to his abundance. It's like he has home court advantage here. Uh, he also has the numbers advantage. You take all 450 prophets, and you all cry out at the same time, and then it'll just be me. Little old me, Elijah. We also see he gives a sacrifice advantage. Verse 25, Elijah says, <clears throat> you choose the bull that you want. You choose. There's two bulls, you take the one. He also gives them the time advantage. He lets them go first. From morning to noon, it's about 9 to 12, to midday, that could be 3. So he gives them basically all day to have their opportunity to call upon God. Now before we move on, I think it's, it, we're, we need to ask, how are we divided today? Are we divided today in our worship? What seeks to distract us from God? Perhaps it's, it's, it's not an idol like maybe they had at that moment, but maybe it's money. Perhaps it's a job. You give everything to your work and you find that you don't have time for anything else. Perhaps it's the stuff you want. You're constantly dissatisfied with the things that you have and you're always looking for what you can buy next. You constantly keep adding things to your Amazon wish list and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Perhaps it's a relationship. You're more concerned with pleasing a person than pleasing God. Look, anything you look towards for satisfaction rather than God becomes an idol. You know, anything we look towards for that satisfaction that satisfies us that only God can do, when we turn to other things, those things can become idols. That's why a spouse, your kids, reputation, your job, those things can all become idols when we look for them to provide satisfaction, when we look for them to provide the meaning of life rather than God. And idols always seek to pull us away from God. And so one thing we need to do as we, as we come to a text like this where we see the people of God are divided in their worship, we need to ask, how are we divided? And so that's a question we need to wrestle with. So let's now look at the method, though. How is Elijah and uh, the prophets of Baal going to go about this? We've already looked at the prophets of Baal, but we'll look at it one more time. We'll start in verse 26. And they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it and called upon the name of Baal, from morning until noon, saying, O Bell, answer us. But there was no answer, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he, put the wood in order to, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, 
fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are Lord and God, that you, are, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So we have the prophets of Baal. Verse 26, they cry out, O Baal, answer us! Now verse 27, it might seem strange to you, but Elijah mocks them. He cries out, Maybe he's, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's daydreaming, musing. Maybe he's going to the bathroom, relieving himself. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's asleep. Now, he's mocking him here, but there's something to know. Um, God's made in our image do things like us. So what he's saying here while he's mocking it is all very true. These are all actually real possibilities. Because what we have here is we have a, a God made in the image of man. Therefore, he does what man does. In fact, there's a story <clears throat> of Anat, Anat, Baal's sister. One day, she came to call upon Baal. Came upon the house, knocked on the door. Baal didn't answer because he was off hunting. That's the problem with false gods. They're busy. They're doing other things. They don't always have time for us because they're made in our image just like we get busy doing things so also do they this is why you have to cry out to them this is why you have to cry so loud this is why it can take all day to get a god's attention and then in verse 28 what we see is that the prophets begin cutting themselves in order to show their devotion to god their voices are not being heard. So obviously, Baal does not think they're fully devoted at this moment. And so now, they're going to take uh, their, their swords and their lances and cut themselves, as it says, is their custom. So this is a practice that they would do to show their devotion and their love to God. But what we see at the end of verse 26 and the end of verse 29, there's no voice, no one answers, no one pays attention. Now, I know for some of us, or I can probably just say for all of us, when we read about a bunch of Old Testament prophets dancing around an altar, crying out, cutting themselves, that seems kind of like a whole other world, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem like something that yet we would do today, but it's not really that far-fetched. There are many tribes today in the world that dance around altars and fires to their gods crying out to them. In fact, even if we go back earlier in our history, American Indians, natives, would be dancing around fires, often calling out to the very spirits that they would worship. And in other religions, it is quite common for, uh, for those who are worshiping their gods to practice uh, many things that would show their devotion to their God, as in cutting themselves, as in sacrificing things, as in doing feats of, um, 
uh, feats of strength in order to prove that they are worthy for their God to answer them. So this is very much what we see in many cultures today, even though maybe not immediately in our culture right here. But do we not see people doing things, even in our culture, to prove their devotion to gods today? Muslims today will bow five times a day to show their devotion to Allah, to prove that He is their God and that He should answer them. Benny Hinn, the prosperity gospel, is, is a, is a, has a great influence on people today. Benny Hinn will come to people, whether in America or in third world countries, and he will end up having them dancing around, barking like dogs, rolling on the ground, all in hopes that God will hear them and bring healing to them. That's the prosperity gospel. You have to prove that you have faith, and if you don't get answered, it means you don't have enough faith, so you need to work harder to prove that you do. So while here, in our immediate culture, we may not have people cutting themselves and dancing in order to win their God's affection, we do have other means that they do that. And in fact, Christians, do we not sometimes read our Bibles, pray, gather with the church more of a means of manipulation rather than a means of grace? I've talked to many Christians and they will say, I don't know why anything bad is going to ha- or is happening to me. I've gone to church all my life. As if because you go to church, God now owes you and you are worthy of only blessing and no longer should anything bad happen to you. I read my Bible, nothing bad should happen. I pray every day God should have healed me or healed her. But rather, these things are given to us as a means of receiving grace as a means of becoming more like Jesus. But even as Christians, because of sin, we pervert them at times, and we twist them into means of manipulation. So be careful that when we read a text like this, we don't just kind of keep it at arm's distance and saying, well, I'm sure glad we don't do anything like that today. Because I think that we do many things very similar to that. And there are many people who actually would do very similar things to exactly what we're reading in the text today. But here's the thing. What we see in God's Word is that there's nothing you or I or anyone can do to actually prove that we are worthy of God's attention. God's Word says that we're born sinful. God's Word says that because we're sinful, we're actually enemies of God. We despise His rule. We do not love Him. So if everything we do is characterized by sin then there is nothing that we can do to actually earn an audience before God. This is why, no matter how many good things we do, how much of the word that we read, how often we pray, how many people we tell about Jesus, or how often we gather with the church, we never put God into our debt. We have no way of proving ourselves before God. This is why He sends His Son. This is why Jesus comes. God sends His Son, Jesus, as a means of grace that we could be forgiven, that we could be made new, that we could be adopted into His family, and that we become children of God. And as children, we no longer need to prove ourselves because we are children. Just as my children, they can go home today and clean their rooms, which I would love. I mean, wouldn't that be great? You just come home and your children say, I've cleaned my room. Can I be your child now? Well, no, but you can clean my room, or you can clean our, your room, and, and you'll still be my child. 
But by cleaning, by doing things within the house, that doesn't make you a child. You do those things because you're part of the family, which is a very hard thing to teach your children. But slowly, maybe there's, there's hope there. Um, but just as my children and your children do not need to do acts in order to prove that they're your children, so now because of the grace of Jesus, we're adopted into his family. We're now the children of God. We don't have to prove ourselves before God, but he's the good father who loves to hear us. He's the good father who loves to provide for us. He's the good father who meets all of our needs. This means that now we can read God's word, we can pray, we can gather with the church, not so that God loves us, but we do those because he loves us. We do those as a means of worshiping him. We do these as a means of growing in that grace. We do these as a means of loving him and being able to love others. So let's look at Elijah's method. Elijah's method is is very different. What he does, notice he rebuilds an altar. So there's an altar there and it's been broken. Most likely because of the worship of Baal, the altar of God has been broken. He takes 12 stones. We're told... The 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he makes a trench around the altar, and he takes four, jar, four jars of water, and he, and he fills them, and he pours the water over the wood, over the stones, over the offering, and he does it three times. Three times four is 12. So this is 12 jars basically being poured out over the altar of 12 stones. Elijah is stacking the deck against him. Remember, he's already given every advantage to Baal, right? He's given location advantage, time advantage, all these advantages, and now he's going to soak his offering in water. Now, for one, water's a pretty rare commodity at this moment, right? There's been a drought, no water for three years. Now all of a sudden we're going to take this water and we're going to pour it over an altar. For one, we should use the water for something else. And two... What would you be thinking at this moment? Well, this isn't going to work. Well, this is stupid. Well, Elijah surely lost his mind. (coughs) And in verse 26, Elijah offers his oblation, which means his sacrifice. Now, he doesn't dance. He doesn't cry out for long periods of time. All we read is that he prays, just like a child coming to his father. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, in Israel. We know exactly who he's talking about. He's talking about the God of the Bible, the God who has made covenants with with Abraham, with Isaac, with Israel. And he says, I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. His purpose is that the people would know that there is no other God, that there is only one God, and it's the God of the Bible. Notice at the end of verse 36, Elijah says, he has only done what God has told him to do. This whole scene, Elijah did not make up. Elijah wasn't sitting there thinking one day, how am I going to convince the people of God to believe in God? God has told him what to do. The whole idea of getting 450 prophets of of Baal and having this altar sacrifice and seeing which God is going to send fire was not his idea. He's simply obeying God. This is God's plan And it's so that the people would know that there's no other God. Elijah's being obedient. Verse 37, he simply says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So here we are. I want you to act so that they know you're God. So here's purpose. 
and that they would turn back, that they would repent. That's the purpose of what's happening here. He's asking, God, reveal your power, reveal your grace at this moment so that your people would know that you are the true God and that they would repent. So what happens next? Let's read verse 39. Or verse 38. When the fire of the, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. So what we have, verse 38, God sends down fire, consumes the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the flesh, the dust, the water. Everything is is gone. There's only burnt ground that's left. Now just imagine seeing that. There's an altar, there's fire, there's nothing but burnt ground. This was an all-consuming fire. Now remember, the people are tired. They've been worn out. They've watched the prophets of Baal at vain cry out, nothing has happened. They're bored. They're sitting there. They have no expectation here at this moment. Water has been poured out upon this altar. And God moves in a miraculous way. And they fall down and they worship God. What do we learn? Location doesn't matter. Numbers don't matter. Time of day doesn't matter. Sacrifice doesn't matter. Water doesn't matter. There is only one true God. It's the God of the Bible. Baal is not him. When it comes down to it, false gods will fail every single time. Why? Because they're false, right? Like true gods can't stand up because they're false verse 39 all of israel is fully convinced they fall down they worship him their hearts have been pierced by the very grace of god and they repent they fall down they worship god and then they slaughter 450 people awesome isn't it typical old testament now is this just random acts of violence is this where we go oh This is gruesome. I'm glad this isn't our God anymore. No, this is our God. Go back in Deuteronomy chapter 13. He says, The prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. False prophets are to be put to death because they're leading the people of God astray from worshiping God to a false God. What we see is that God is holy. He is a perfect, holy God, and He will not stand for other gods being proclaimed. In fact, in a couple months, we're going to be beginning the book of Galatians, and in Galatians, we're going to see that false prophets are called out, and they're called accursed, which means they should be burned with the fire of hell. And so, New Testament, Old Testament, those who preach a false gospel will be punished severely because there is a holy God. And he's against all those who will proclaim a false gospel, another God. So what do we learn here in this passage? 
Well, number one, we learn that God is powerful, right? I mean, we have the God of Baal. He's not able to do anything. But we see God, Yahweh, he sends fire so hot, it consumes everything. Now just think about that. It consumes everything. You see, God is not an idol. He's not deaf or mute. With words, he spoke everything into existence. His power knows no limits. Weeks, a um, couple months ago, we went to uh, down south into the lava tubes um, down by St. Helens, where the lava is so hot it just cuts through the rock. That's our God. At a mere thought, he causes volcanoes to erupt, sending forth lava, rivers of lava that cuts through the landscape, forever marring that landscape. And then now we can walk through it in awe of the fact that this is a small display of God's God's power as it destroys everything in its path. God is of infinite power. He needs not even to flex his muscles to send fire so hot it consumes rocks and bone and flesh. So what else do we learn though? We see God is powerful, but we see that he's gracious. God refuses to let his people wander. He refuses to let them limp. He refuses to let them try to choose. Which line will I choose? This one or this one? Which God's going to serve me? God in his grace pursues his people. Do you know that? God pursues his people. Just as one does not marry a spouse who promises to only be 95% faithful, like when, you, when your spouse proposed to you, I doubt he said that. Got on his knee. I promise I will be 95% faithful to you. And you said, well, that's an A. That's passing. But just as no spouse would be honored by that, so the God who has created all things has not saved us so that we would be 95 or 5 or anything less than fully devoted to God. So this means the three-year drought that has come upon Israel was a means of grace that was moving them towards a point where they would gather the 450 prophets of Baal on top of a mountain where they would want to see which God is real. This means that Elijah gathering the people is a means of grace. This means that the rebuilding of the 12 stones into the altar of God, which think about that, the 12 stones. Right now, Israel's divided, right? You have the 10 tribes and the two tribes down here. And yet we have an altar of 12 stones symbolizing the people of God in their fullness. Do you not see the grace of God? God is going to act in such a way that he's going to be bringing all of his people back together. Everything about this story is one of grace. And isn't that what we read throughout the Bible? God giving grace so that his people would know him and would trust in him. God redeems his people out of Egypt, does it by ten plagues, takes them through the Red Sea, all by grace, and he says, you are my people, and then he gives them the ten commandments. Notice it's not the other way around. He doesn't say, here's ten commandments, now prove yourself so that you can become my people. But by grace, he reveals himself so they would be his people. 
God takes him through the wilderness. God takes him into over the Jordan River and brings down the walls of Jericho all by grace so they'd be reminded he is the one true God that they are to worship him and him alone. This is the God of the Bible. Idols like Baal do nothing because they're powerless and they're loveless. But our God is full of love, of grace, and of power. And he constantly reveals himself throughout his word of how he loves us, of how he meets our needs through his grace. So here in this text, what we see is God revealing himself by sending fire upon an altar, right? And at this altar, he reveals his power and his grace, that he is the one true God. But this is not the only altar that he does this at. There is another altar that comes years later that we come across in the New Testament that he shows his love in a much more powerful and magnificent way. And that's at the cross of Jesus Christ where he sends his son, his very own son, to come to live on earth to preach a message of forgiveness that we who believe in him would be forgiven. And he's perfect. He's done nothing wrong. And then he's arrested and he's crucified so that at that moment, at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would see the power of God, that he alone is able to save us from our sins. He alone is able to conquer sin, death, and Satan. We see the grace of God. There's no way that we're able to earn our way before God. There's no way we're able to earn the presence of God, the honor of God, the love of God. And yet, Jesus comes as the grace of God, as the full revelation of God, to pay the penalty that we could not pay so that by grace, we could be saved and have life. There's no other God, right? Amen indeed, right, Roger? There's no other God. There's no other God in all of history who sends himself, who sends his son to die for his people. All other false gods make demands and say, make your way to me. The God of the Bible says, there's no way you can come to me. I come to you. So that then he would bring us to himself. There's no other God. There's nothing in creation that can satisfy your souls you can try you can work 80 hours a week you can buy everything on your amazon wish list nothing will satisfy you only god transforms us so that we no longer limp but that we have fullness of joy in christ do you know that notice israel is said that they limp when they're divided now it's a play on words They're limping, meaning like they're wavering, but also they're limping as in they're a broken people at this moment. The the false prophets are said to be limping around. When we're worshiping false gods, we're not whole. We're limping. We're broken. We're proving our brokenness in the very way we limp around our gods because they're not able to satisfy us. They're not able to forgive us. They're not able to make us whole. Only the God of the Bible transforms us. Only God's grace in Jesus Christ makes us whole. Remember the stories as we come into the New Testament. Jesus comes to the crippled, and what does he do? He picks him up and he walks. That's the picture of the newness of life that we have in Jesus Christ. 
Now the world will lie, because that's what it does, and it says you can have both gods. You can have God, Yahweh, and you can have Baal. It doesn't mind if you serve God. Did you know that the world actually doesn't mind? In fact, it's all for it. Serve God, just not only God. Serve God and something else. See, false gods are like the whore that's intent on distracting us from our true love. Keeps luring us away, distracting us, promising us things that it's never able to give us. The world says you can serve God in a church building. The world, the world says you can serve God in your home. The world says you can serve God in a lot of those nice little places. Just don't bring it out into the actual world, to where you work, into the park, into the mall, into wherever you actually go. What kind of God would that be if he was only able to be worshipped in certain locations? What kind of God would he be if he wasn't worthy to be worshipped everywhere? What kind of God would he be if he wasn't big enough to be proclaimed in the streets, also in our home? If he was only able to be proclaimed in this building or in our houses, would he be that big of a God? Would he be worthy of all worship? No. But here we have the God who's created all things that we would proclaim him in all places. And this is what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. God's not saved part of you. He saved every part of you. And he's redeemed every part of you that you would live fully devoted to him. So as we close, I I want you to wrestle with How are you to respond? Are you living fully devoted lives to God? Now, I know that often we say, I wish God would just act in a way like this today. If he only sent down fire, if only he revealed his grace today, I, I would jump on board, I would leave all these other things, and I would totally be fully committed. But what we do at that moment, we deny the fact that Jesus, that God's word has said, I have revealed myself in Jesus fully. And so Jesus came as the full revelation of God. And we read about him in his word. I want to encourage you that as Christians, God has given us his word as a means of grace that every day we'd be reminded of God's grace and power. Brian's testimony earlier, as I've read the Bible, it's changed me. You want to know why? Because every time we're entering into God's Word, His grace is washing over us, and we're being transformed more like Him. Every time we gather with the church, we're gathering with other people who have been given the Spirit of God that we would encourage one another, that we'd help one another, that we'd hold each other accountable 
that we'd grow with one another. The women, they have their Tuesday morning Bible study about to begin where they're going to gather as the church, encouraging each other through the Word of God. That's all grace right there, reminding us of the power of God and the grace of God. Every time you pray, that's grace. Do you know that? That God answers you, that God hears you as a father does his child. Baptism today is a means of grace. It's a means of grace as Wyatt experienced it. It's a means of grace as we experienced it watching him, being reminded of the gospel. When we take the Lord's Supper and we're taking of the bread and as we're taking of the juice, being reminded of the new covenant that's in Jesus Christ, that through his body, he offers forgiveness of sins. We're receiving grace at that moment, being reminded of the power of God and the grace of God. We don't need new revelations. I hope you know that. We have plenty of revelation right here in his word. And God has given us many means of grace that we would regularly experience Him, that we'd regularly know Him, and that we'd regularly grow in our knowledge of Him, that we'd be able to live devoted lives to Him. So when we say, as Christians, we're to live fully devoted lives, that's not just a wish. Well, that's what we say as Christians, but we just know it's not possible like maybe you think that. Well, we, we shoot high, but we know we're going to aim down here. Is that what God's Word says? He says, live for me. Take up your cross. Renounce all that you have. You have been saved to be a child of God. And so as you begin this new year, I know resolutions seem like a like maybe a strange thing now because so many people don't make them. Maybe they're a joke to you because you just look at them and you say, nobody keeps them. Or maybe you don't make them uh, because of a fear of failure. I haven't kept any of the ones in the past. I don't want to make any more so that I'm just reminded of all the things I don't do. But I want to remind you that when we come to God's Word, we're entering into His grace. And He's promised to complete the work that He began in us. And so as we begin this new year, I want to encourage you to think about those resolutions, but not empty resolutions of just, well, this is what I want to do, or this would be nice, but what do we see in God's Word? Let that inform our resolution, and then let's not make resolutions that are so grand that we are not going to keep them, but let's make them for the month of January right now. Let's make them doable and share them with other believers And let's make them about God's Word. I want to be in the Word of God. Well, how are you going to do that? You have Bible reading plans in all of your bulletins today. And guess what? If you don't like those, uh, did you put it on the website? Or you put it on the Facebook. And we'll put it on our website. There you can go. And there's like a billion Bible reading plans out there. You can pick the one you want. And the one we gave you, I think it has two columns. You can do both columns. You can do one column. You can do all of them in one day if you want. Um, We're not going to limit you Those are simply tools for you. But I want you to begin thinking, God has promised to give us His grace. How are we now going to live in a way that we're going to continually taste that grace? God's not holding it back from us, saying jump higher, but He freely gives it to us, and His Spirit is in you that you would read it. And I promise you, as you read it, it's like the first time you taste honey. You want to taste it again and again, because it's sweet and it's good. So I want to encourage you to wrestle with 
What has your attendance been with the church? Gathering with the church is a primary means of grace that we encourage one another, that we help one another. Reading the word, praying with one another. Those are all means of grace that we grow and become more like Jesus. So I know that many that we're on the first day and that resolutions might be strange. But if you go on to, if you go on to our website today, I reposted on the blog that's on our website uh, from Desiring God, and he wrote um, a blog uh, titled Habits of Grace. And he titled it on what are habits that as Christians we are to have that every time we do them, we're experiencing the grace of God. Now, wouldn't that be a neat thing to do this year? That as we go through 2017, we're regularly tasting the grace of God through his word, through the church, through prayer, through simply obedience to what he's called us to do. So I want to encourage you uh, to wrestle with where you're at right now. Now, if you're an unbeliever and you're here and, and this might sound new to you, I want to encourage you to come to understanding of who Jesus Christ is, that you would believe in him, that you would repent and believe and enter into a relationship with him today. Because as, as we've shown here in this text, and we can show in the rest of the Bible, that there is no other God. Because there's no other God that can answer. There's no other God that is able to make any promises and fulfill any promises. There is only one true God, and it's the God of the Bible. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in grace and power. Thank you for sending down fire. But God, even more important than that, we thank you that you have sent forth your Son. Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would be saved, that we would know you and that we would love you and that we would experience your joy. That we would experience, God, your grace and your mercy, that we would experience what it is to be made new in you. God, we love you. We thank you for the forgiveness of your Son, Jesus. I pray that as we go through 2017, that as a church, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and that we would practice these habits of grace and that we would be fully devoted to you. Yes, God, we know that we're going to sin, but we know that your grace is there to pick us up every time and that we continue to follow you, that we continue to walk after you and praise you in all of our lives. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. No questions this week, which I want to remind you, you can always ask questions during our messages. It was pointed out, though, someone did text in, uh, today is the first day of the year, and we're, we're here gathering, and the last day of the year is December 31st, and it's also on a Sunday, and so it is kind of fun. We're going to gather and uh, worship God on the beginning of the year and the end of the year, and hopefully all throughout the year, but fun fact for you, um, I just want to encourage you, it is good uh, to be gathered here today. And I want to encourage you that as you go home, read your word. It is, is a means of grace every single day. If you don't have a Bible, take one. If you know someone doesn't have a Bible, take one. We have plenty of other Bibles. We'll restock the Bibles. Um, if anyone needs a Bible, please always take a Bible. There's one of the best ways to continue to grow in the grace of God and in his knowledge is daily in the word. And so I want to pray as we close off in one more song. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a gracious God. God, you have revealed your grace ever since the beginning of creation. 
through Adam and Eve, the fact that you have created, the fact that you have promised redemption all the way back in the garden, your covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God, you have regularly bestowed grace upon your people. And God, most beautifully, you have bestowed it through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as your church, that we would never forget your son, Jesus Christ that we would not be distracted from him. God, I pray that as a church, we would hold one another accountable, that we would encourage one another, that as we grow in 2017, that we'd grow in our relationship with one another so that we would spur one another on, that we would encourage each other, that together as a body, we'd grow in our love for you, our knowledge of you, and that we would proclaim you here all the more. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.